All right. You guys have your Bibles. Open them up. We're ready for Revelation chapter 4. Um, as you're opening your Bibles, men, we also have the opportunity to go to a men's retreat. So I wanted to um, invite you men that if you'd like to go, it's not our retreat, actually. I've been asked to teach a men's retreat for a Calvary Chapel that's in Ogden. And so um, he said he has some extra spots. And if I want to bring some of the guys from church that we can go, I think the cost is $130. It's the weekend of September 17th and 18th. I think that's the Friday, Saturday. Sunday would be the 19th. Um, We can go together. One thing is I'm teaching all three sessions. And so you're already used to hearing me teach and you can do without it. And that's cool, too. But if you want to come hang out and uh, fellowship with another Calvary Chapel here in um, northern Utah, that's September 17th, 18th, and 19th. Um, uh, just talk to me. If you want to be a part, I have some more information for you to get signed up through them, through their website. And again, this is another church that will just be kind of crashing their party. Um, if any of you men would like to join with us on that, um, that's great. And then next Sunday... Um, Josh and I are going to the pastor's conference in um, Stone Mountain, Georgia. So it's just outside of Atlanta, Georgia. It's funny now when I say Georgia because we talk so much about the country of Georgia and the Republic of Georgia and we do ministry there that um, I have to qualify. We're talking about this one is uh, United States, Georgia. So um, I'll tell you, it's kind of funny because. Where we are today in in the book of Revelation, we're going to be studying and we're going to see the rapture of the church in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. And this time of year is always very heightened, alert. Everybody's on kind of heightened alert. And I'll tell you why. Who? Who? Someone said it? Because of the Feast of Trumpets. And so Rosh Hashanah is is the fourth or the fifth, I'm sorry, of the seven major Jewish holidays and festivals. And so biblically, um, again, I want to be careful because I don't want to go too much into it and do a study, but I don't want to do it disservice either. But there's seven Jewish feasts. And in Leviticus, God says that he lays out his holy days. Now, what's, what's fascinating is that we call them the seven Jewish feasts. But God says in his word in Leviticus um, 24, he says they're my feasts. So we have to be careful that they're, they're not just exclusive to Israel. They're, they're for the believers, for, for the body of Christ that we're to, that these feasts are for us. And then the word that's used um, is, it means that it's a season. The word is season, but it's not just in its season. It's, it's more than that. It's, it, it, it's a rehearsal is what the Hebrew word means. So they're, they're rehearsals. They're dress rehearsals for things that are to, co- to come in Leviticus, these seven feasts. And, and then four of them are fulfilled in the life of Jesus and the death and the resurrection of Jesus and the birth of the church. And three, which we call the fall feasts, are, are um, prophetically, they're unfulfilled. So the first of the seven Jewish feasts is Passover. And something very significant happened on Passover. Do you remember what it was? Jesus died on a cross. Do you remember the Jews came to um, Pontius Pilate and they said, we don't want the bodies on the, the crosses as we open, as we begin our Passover celebration. And so they went and they broke the legs of the other two thieves, but Jesus was already dead, and he died exactly on Passover. Then the next Jewish feast is unleavened bread, and Jesus was buried on unleavened bread, fulfilled to the actual moment in time of these, these feasts. The next Jewish feast um, in the seven is the Feast of first fruits, and Jesus was the first fruit to rise from the dead. The unleavened bread, the one where he was buried, um, unleavened bread speaks of, of, of a sacrifice without sin. Right? When we receive communion, why do we receive communion? With unleavened bread. Because if you take it with leavened bread, you're missing the whole point, the whole picture of what communion is all about. Because it's, it's a representation of the sinless body of Jesus. And so it was without leaven. And part of the Passover feast is to go through the house and the celebration and remove all the leaven from the house. They would actually go through, and you know the idea of that white glove? It actually comes from the Bible comes from, from the Feast of Passover because they would go through the house with a white glove and, and make sure all of the leaven was removed from the house so they could properly celebrate the Feast of Passover according to their custom without leaven. Because in the Bible, leaven is a type of sin. And a little leaven does what? Leavens the whole lump. And so Jesus is without sin and buried on unleavened bread. And then the next Jewish holiday, again, these happen in, in, in quick succession. 
as they're celebrated in the springtime is first fruits, is resurrection. The next of the seven is Pentecost. And Pentecost comes 50 days after first fruits. And so you mark 50 days. And Pentecost was when the church, or the Feast of Weeks, and this is when the church was born. And the church was born in Acts chapter 2 as the Holy Spirit fell and the disciples um, received the gifts of the Spirit and speaking in tongues. And Peter began to preach and 3,000 people got, got saved. And that begun the dispensation that you and I have been studying in Revelation 2 and 3 called the church age. And the church age will end with the rapture. Romans 11.25, 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Corinthians 15, Revelation 3, Revelation 4, that that the church age will end with the rapture of the church. And so we have these three remaining um, holy days or rehearsals, dress rehearsals as God calls them in Leviticus. And and the next one is the Feast of Trumpets. And and we know the word trumpet just goes with the rapture. And every study of, of the rapture has this word trumpet in it. So we So at this time of year, um, Feast of Trumpets this year on the Jewish calendar falls on our um, September 6th, 7th, and 8th. And, and the thing about the Feast of Trumpets that's fascinating and why a lot of people believe that um, it will be fulfilled in the rapture is because the Feast of Trumpets is called the, the, the feast where no man knows the day or the hour. That's the Jewish culture. That's Jewish custom. They're not looking at Jesus or anything prophetically or... They just say it's the the feast where no man knows the day or the hour. And so what happens in Israel is they have two rabbis that have to be located in these special locations, the separate locations, and and they measure the the moon by their thumb, and they put their thumb out, and and they do something. And if if they can confirm that that, that it's it's the exact time, then they will blow the trumpet. And the the other priest on the other side who's doing the same thing, and when both of these priests confirm... Um, then they blow the trumpet. But on a sim- as something as simple as on a cloudy day, and you can't see the sign that you're looking for, the, the Feast of Trumpets won't start on that day. It'll go to the next day. And then if they can get a, get a clear reading and they blow, the, they blow the shofar, then the Feast of Trumpets has begun. So you don't know the day or the hour. And because Jesus said no man knows the day or the hour, they put that together with the Feast of Trumpets to mean the rapture. And then... Um, the Feast of Atonements is six and Tabernacles is seven. Tabernacles would be the thousand year reign of Christ very clearly. Um, so very possible, you know, I'll be at the pastors, Josh and I and Pastor Gerald. Well, Pastor Gerald's teaching at this pastor's conference too. So it'd be really cool. He's teaching Tuesday night. He's teaching the main session. So it's pretty cool. Um, pastor Gerald's been asked to teach this pastor's conference. It's the pastor's conference for the deep South Calvary Chapel pastors that covers uh, the deep South. It's in Georgia, Alabama, Louisiana, Tennessee. Um, and, and so who knows? If, if I get raptured next week, I'll meet you, I'll meet you guys in the air. Now, now, with this, I want to be careful, okay? I want to be careful because that's, that's an idea and that's a thing. But part of the problem with this biblical interpretation is that we, we then would, which it makes so much sense because the way that the first four feasts were fulfilled, Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, Pentecost, God fulfilled them exactly on the day to the second. I mean, with the fulfillment, Jesus died on a cross at three o'clock and in the temple at three o'clock, the, 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 the sacrificial lamb that would be offered on Passover. It's at three zero 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 that the priest will will slice his neck and, and sacrifice the lamb in the temple. So as Jesus is dying on a cross, and at the moment he says, Tate Celestai, and he breathes his last, as the Bible says, and he does this. At that moment, in the temple in Jerusalem, three, four hundred yards from where Jesus just died, the priest takes the knife and runs it across the, the Passover lamb's throat to begin the Passover and, and unleavened bread. And so there's this pattern where God is laying out. And we know, again, and again, it's a fascinating study to study the seven feasts of the Lord and how they fit prophetically and how God fulfilled them and what Leviticus says and what the language says the feasts are. So it makes so much sense. But we do get into a little bit of, um, because here's the problem. And, and again, I always kind of have my antennas up a little bit, I have to tell you, around, around September, around the Feast of uh, Trumpets, and I, I, just can't, I just can't avoid it. 
But, you know, the problem is, here's the problem. If, if you really stick to this as doctrine, then every year when the Feast of Trumpets comes and goes, then Jesus can't come back until next year. Now here we are, you know, in Christmas and New Year's, and we're like, well, I got some time, let's, you know, whatever, I can live how I want, because the rapture can't happen until the Feast of Trumpets. And that's, that's not good doctrine either, because Jesus can come back anytime, anytime. And it's also possible that the fulfillment, but I, I do still believe that Jesus will fulfill the Feast of Trumpets just like he did the first four. So it's very possible that the Feast of Trumpets is the return of Jesus, but maybe not in the rapture. Maybe it's in the second coming of Christ, because he's going to come again. And the rapture, Jesus doesn't actually come. The Bible says that we who are alive in Christ and remain, we will be a rapture. We will be caught up to meet Jesus where? In the air, in the clouds. So Jesus doesn't actually come. But in the battle of Armageddon, Revelation chapter 9, 19, Jesus comes on a white horse and he actually comes to the valley of Megiddo in the flesh, in the glorified flesh. And he comes and we come with him. So, again, but, but it is, again, like I said, it's always, um, and that's how they, you know, if you see these guys that are, that are predicting dates and, 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 you know, predicting rapture things, then um, that's where it comes from. I'll tell you where the other thing comes from. The re- real famous um, rapture prediction was 88 reasons why Jesus would come back um, in 1988. And I'll tell you how they came to this conclusion very simply. The Bible says that the generation that sees um, Matthew 24, the generation that sees the rebirth of Israel will be the generation that sees the coming of the Lord. And so Israel was reborn as, as a nation in May 14, 1948. And so they simply said a generation, a biblical generation is 40 years. And so 1948, you add 40 years, Jesus coming back in 1988. Now, now I will tell you, and I want to be clear on this is that, but you know, then, then, then others would say, okay, a biblical generation is 70 years, so it's not 88, it's 98, two, that's 2018. Well, now we've passed the 40 year generation, we've passed the 70 year generation. Um, so maybe, you know, sometimes a oh, biblical generation is 100 years. Just be careful with some of that stuff, and that's how those guys got in trouble, and Harold Camping picking a date and having people, um, you know, charge their credit cards and spend their life savings on. Because they predicting the time when Jesus was coming back. Now, we, we don't know the day or the hour. The Bible says that. Jesus said no man knows the day or the hour. Now, again, that, like I've already said, I hope you caught this, was that some will interpret that as Jesus saying that that was the clue that it was the Feast of Trumpets because the Feast of Trumpets is no man knows the day or the hour. And that's more what Jesus meant by that. But I, I do um, still stick to the traditional interpretation that no man knows the day or the hour and that we don't know. But, but also the Bible is very clear that of the times and seasons you shall know, according to the rapture. Paul, speaking to the Thessalonians, he said, listen, people, he said, you have no need that I write to you concerning the return of our Lord. Why? Why was there no need that he needed to write to them concerning? Because he said, you already know the times and seasons. You already know the signs. You, there's no need that I write to you on these things because you understand that. And so for us as his people, the Bible says that, that when they say peace and safety, sudden destruction comes upon them like labor pains on a pregnant woman. But you have to understand, he says, when they say peace and safety. That's not us. That's not the church. It's not going to come upon you and I as, as sudden destruction. It's not going to come upon the church as a thief in the night. That's for the world. The world is going to be surprised. Satan has been preparing them. And this world has been preparing them because he knows a rapture is coming. And so they're, they're fascinated with aliens and zombies and all kinds of crazy stuff because Satan knows a rapture is coming. But they don't know the day or the hour. And so, um, anyways, that's kind of the idea. Now, again, I'll just say this, that um, we, we do know, the again, the times and the seasons. And we know we're living in the days as these signs continue around us to ramp up. We had a wild week last week with what took place in Afghanistan and how that fits into biblical prophecy. And we went over that last week a little bit. Uh, so I won't, won't rehash those things. But we are just living in a day where it's, it's high times. And Jesus said in these days, you don't want to be caught carousing around in drunkenness and with the cares of this world. It's not time. And Jesus said these words. These aren't my words, you guys. 
Look it up. It's in Luke chapter 21. And Jesus basically said carousing around was sleeping with somebody you're not married to. Living outside of biblical standards of holiness and of morality. Jesus said now is not the time. You don't want to be caught with your hand in the cookie jar. Carousing and then drunkenness is, is, is just that. Do you guys need a Greek scholar to tell you what the English word drunkenness means? It's not the time to be out there. He said watch and pray that you would be counted worthy to escape the things that's going to come upon a Christ-rejecting world. And so it's time for us to be ready and to, you know, to, to be expectant for the Lord to come back. And not only that, also as Christ followers, it comes with this urgency that we don't want to see other people miss it. And we want to share our faith. Amen? So that was just to tell you guys that Feast of Trumpets is coming up in a week. And uh, if you hear the trumpet call of God, then... Uh, then we'll know, and if we get caught up, and, you know, I want to say one more thing on the rapture, and, um, you know, if you're in here today, and you have the attitude, like, I've heard so much about the rapture that there's no way, when it happens, that I'll, I'll miss it, like, then, if I don't go up in the rapture, I'll know what it was, and then I'll know, and then I can just get right with Jesus then, so you got huge problems with that philosophy, Okay? Again, you've you got to follow the biblical model of what God does to see what he's going to do. And that's just the way God's laid it out for us. So you have Noah who goes into the ark seven days before the flood begins. Seven days before it started to rain and the waters of the deep and the waters of the firmament came down and the flood destroyed and killed every human on planet Earth. Seven days he was in the boat with the door shut. And then when the waters began, when, the, when it began to rain, people flocked to the boat at that moment when they started to see what Noah was preaching for 120 years was coming true before their eyes, and nobody got in. Not one person got saved after the flood started. And, and I'm not saying that nobody gets saved in the seven-year tribulation period or after the rapture, because we do see a unique group um, all the way through the book of Revelation, tribulation saints who do get saved. But I, I, I know I have, I have good pastor friends who, who you guys would know and well respect that, that don't believe that's going to be just your average Christian who had the opportunity. This is going to be people that haven't heard in, uh, in obscure groups and Jews, of course, because God is going to be focused on the Jews during the seven-year tribulation period. And that those that, that knew and had the opportunity and missed it, that there won't be a second chance for them, just like Noah in the flood. No second chance. There was no chance to climb up the side of the boat and just, okay, jump in when the water started rising. Nobody else got in. And, and here's the thing, that there's two scriptures I want you to pay attention to regarding this kind of idea that I'll just wait for the rapture and then get right. The Bible says that, that the God delusion, have you ever heard that word? Well, well, it's kind of misused in the world, and I think it's a movie, and it, it's, it's skewed. What it's talking about, it says that when, when the rapture happens, it says that God is going to send a delusion. So when God sends a confusion... Like, this is not even a trick of Satan. And then in another place, it says that, that the, the will be, what's the word? I'm missing the word. But it will be so, deception will be so strong that if it were possible, it would deceive even the elect. Okay, and that's part, because that that's a deception from Satan. And you're thinking, okay, maybe I can, I can still get over that. I can beat that. It's a deception from Satan. I'm not going to allow myself to be deceived. What's the deception going to be? I think it's going to be grand, and we can't really figure it out. You know, I don't think we're going to figure it out. We could guess. We, these are the things we guess. We say, the Antichrist is going to rise to power after the rapture, and what he's going to do is he's going to say, aliens abducted all of these people because they want us to believe in aliens, and aliens is a big deal, and that's an easy solution. It's an alien abduction. It's a mass alien abduction. There, there could be, to mask the rapture, there, there could be war that's taking place because Jesus said when you see wars and rumors of wars, maybe we, we have enough firepower to destroy the planet Earth. It used to be seven times over when we were in the, um, in the Cold War with Russia. That was 25 or however long ago that was, right? 50 years ago in the 70s. And, and, and so today I think that number is, who knows, it's infinitely higher, the, the amount of firepower we have to destroy the world. But even in a limited nuclear strike, if the United States suffered some kind of limited nuclear strike from another country, that, that in, the, in the wake of the dust settling, the raptures happened, and that's part of an explanation. But who knows, again, how it's going to be explained. But the Bible says that the, the deception, if it were possible, would deceive even the elect. 
And then later it says there'll be that God will send a delusion upon the upon the world. So we got those two things we got to figure out. All right. So I just got a much simpler solution is what I'm trying to say. Just give your life to Jesus right now. Get right with God. Be ready for the rapture. Be born again, believer in Jesus Christ. And, and know that when when the Lord comes, you're going to come with him. All right. You guys have your Bibles open to chapter 4? Okay, yeah. Some of you guys are like, yeah, we've had them open for 20 minutes. Get to it already. <laughs> that, that was about verse 1. I could have read verse 1 and then had that little talk and faked it. Like, but it is really, that talk was specifically tied to verse 1 of chapter 4. It says, after these things. Look at your neighbor and say, metatauta. Okay, you can write that in your margin. The Greek word there is metatauta. After these things. Now, Jesus said, and we know the book of Revelation is not a hard book to understand, right? It's the only book in the Bible that comes with its own divine outline. And that is found in Revelation chapter 1 in verse number 19. Write the things that were past. Write the things that are. Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Write the things which metatauta will come after this, Revelation 1.19. Metatauta, write the things that will come after the church age. After Revelation 2 and 3, when Jesus is speaking to the seven churches, and we have this um, church age, and metatauta, the things after this. So Jesus said, write the things that are after. Again, Revelation 1.19, things that are past, things that are present, things that are to come. Revelation 4 and 5, a scene in heaven. Revelation 6 through 19 details what? The seven-year tribulation period. Revelation 19, the battle of Armageddon. We come back with Jesus. Revelation 20, the millennial reign. Revelation 20 and 21 and 22, a new heaven and a new earth. And then we all live happily ever after. We've been doing that long enough now that you guys should be better at it than that. Maybe it's me. I'll just take credit because I know I do it a little different every time. So I got to get it down so that it's the same questions and you guys will get it. But yeah, I want you to understand that simple key to the book of Revelation. And then as you read it, it won't be a daunting task for you anymore. You can read through it when you get into this ominous stuff and you're in chapter 10 somewhere and it's this mystery, this secret revealed. You're like, what is this secret? You know, and and you, you don't it doesn't have to overwhelm you because, you know, If I'm in chapter 10, I'm in the parameters of 6 through 19, and so I'm reading about some event that's going to be taking place after the church is removed in chapter 4, and and the the seven-year tribulation is going off, and God is judging a Christ-rejecting world. He's focusing on Israel, and he's bringing Israel back to himself. Amen? All right, so it says, after these things, metatauta, after the church age. Hey, turn with me, if you guys will, real quick, to Romans chapter 11. I didn't mark it, so let's race there. Um, I just want to tell you to mark this verse, okay? This is verse number 25 of Romans 11. Now, there's, there's multiple rapture verses, and this one's a little obscure, but it says, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. If God says to you in his word, hey, I don't want you to miss this. I don't want you to be ignorant concerning this issue. The Bible says that seven times in the New Testament. I don't want you to be ignorant concerning this and this and this. And and I've gone through them a bunch of times and I don't have time now, but they're fascinating. You could just do a study on do not be ignorant in your New Testament and read the seven places where God's talking about that. And it says, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel. The Bible says that Israel, why? Why, how? How can Israel and very wise, smart rabbis who have spent their entire lives studying the Old Testament read a passage in Isaiah that that is exactly clear about Jesus as the Messiah and say, oh, no, that's not Jesus. Because there's blinders that God has placed over their eyes. I don't think it's just the, just Israel, but definitely in Israel, God says that, that they've been blinded. And there's been blinders. There's going to come a day when he's going to remove those blinders from their eyes. I think we have some folks that, that, that are, are neighbors to us that have blinders on their eyes. And they don't see, and they can't see through them. And somehow God has to remove these blinders. But Israel has been blinded in part. And you have to pray, listen, when someone has blinders on their eyes... 
no kind of arguing or discussing is going to make a difference. You're never going to argue or theologically or doctrinally challenge somebody and, and, and change their opinion or lead them to Christ that way. I'll tell you, there's only one way, especially to lead a Jew, to lead someone who has blinders in their eyes to Jesus, and that is through prayer. You have to be committed and willing to, for long seasons of time, be praying by name for individuals that you want to see God use you in to, to share the faith with them. Because this is a spiritual battle that they're facing. And oftentimes, as you begin to pray for somebody specifically that's a hard case, and you think, man, they'll never believe. They'll never come to Jesus. But you're committed for months, six months, a year, two years, five years of praying for this person. Then, then, then it's not like, okay, I've been praying now for six months. I'm coming over to their house, and, I, and everything's going to change. Not the way it goes down, I wish. But, you know, here's what does happen. Your phone rings one day out of the blue. And the person on the other line says, and you know what? The Holy Spirit has really been speaking to me. And God's, God has been impressing some things upon my heart. And, and I got some questions. Can I talk to you? You're like, eh, 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 come on over. What a surprise. I had no idea. God's been speaking to you apart from me. That's the way it works, that God begins to work. Because for those cases, the Holy Spirit really begins, needs to chisel those those things away and they'll and, and when God gets a hold of their heart and begins to speak to them, then you can have a conversation with them that's open and, and, and it's not arguing and, and they're asking the questions and they're wanting to hear and learn. And so these folks have blinders on their eyes and God says that Israel is blinded in part until listen, that there's gonna come a time when God is going to remove the blinders. And I've told you guys over and over again, I, I'm pretty staunch pre tribulation rapture theory guy. Like I just see it. It just makes sense to me. It's clear. Genesis to Revelation. Um, and, and what's going to happen, and one of the main reasons for that is because everything in the seven-year tribulation that we read about, it's all Jewish. It's Jewish in nature. It affects the cultures of Jews and not Gentiles. And everything reads as if you were a Jew. And so the church is not there. The Gentile is not there because God is focusing on the apple of his eye, as he calls them. And, and he's going to take a time. Daniel chapter... Um, 9 talks about this 70 weeks of prophecy and there's 69 fulfilled and one is yet future. And that one week that's missing in Daniel chapter 9, that's the seven-year tribulation period. The first 69 weeks of Daniel's prophecy is all about Israel. Guess what the 70th week of Daniel is going to be all about? It's going to be about Israel. We're not going to be there. Jesus is going to come for his bride. And so he's, he's going to focus again. And he says here in, in Romans chapter 11 that, that Israel is blind and there's going to come a time and they are going to be blind until, spoiler alert, what does it say? Until when? The fullness of the Gentiles has come in. What does that mean? What is the fullness of the Gentiles? That means when God is not going to save any more Gentiles, when the number is full, he's going to remove them. And when, 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 when he comes in a rapture, this is a rapture verse. When the fullness of the Gentiles comes, the last um, Christian, we, we, we go up. And then he's going to focus for seven years upon Israel. And in, Rome, in, in Revelation 11, we're going to see that he calls and singles out 144,000 um, Jewish evangelists, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, and he puts a seal on their forehead, and he protects them through the tribulation. Just like he protected Noah through the flood, just like he protected Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego through the fire. Daniel's not in the fire. He's missing because he's a picture of the rapture of the church that went up. And so um, till the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Let's go back to Revelation. So this has happened. After this things, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. So now a door standing open. Our, our, our rapture verse from chapter 3, and Jesus is talking to the faithful church, and he says to that church in verse number 10, chapter 3, because you have kept my command to preserve, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. And so this church, this faithful church, he promises he's going to keep them from the hour of trial. They're going to be raptured. They're going to go up. And this is the church of the open door. And then John says, I saw a coincidence, open door, and it's standing open. Nobody, nobody had to open it. There wasn't an angel there working the hinges. They didn't come and, 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 and knock on it, and then it get open to them. 
It was standing open in heaven. And God says to him, come up here in verse 4. If that's not a rapture verse, I don't know what is. Come up here. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the word is caught up. And it's very similar. Come up, caught up. The word rapture, some say, oh, the word rapture is not in your Bible. Well, it depends what Bible you use. If you use the Latin Vulgate, it is in your Bible. And it's just translated into English, caught up. Or raptus. That is, is where we get our, our word English word rapture. And so, But whether the word rapture is there or not, the concept is taught so many multiple times in the Bible. And so here it says that he's caught up. And it's so consistent because the church age is, has ended. The last time the church is mentioned is in Revelation 3.22. Everything before this in chapters 2 and 3 is the church, the church, the church, the church, the church, the church. You get to chapter 4, he says, come up. We, have, we see the church here in heaven in chapters 4 and 5, but the church is not mentioned again in Revelation 6 through 19 until the end of chapter 19 when Jesus is coming back in the battle of Armageddon at the end of the seven years. Why is the church not mentioned for seven years of, of recorded history? Because we're not there. No mention of the church, not halfway through. We don't go halfway through and then go up. We don't go all the way through. And here's the other thing. If the church is going to come back very clearly, nobody can argue this. It's, it's so simple English, it doesn't take a bunch of theologians to mess it up. It says that Jesus is coming back on a white horse and the church is coming with him. If we're coming with him, we would have had to be with him to come with him. We would have already had to be in heaven, right? Simple deduction there. And then he says in verse number 2, he says you must take place after this and immediately. And again, this is the idea. It's another rapture word. Immediately. I was in the spirit. Behold, a throne set in heaven and one who sat on the throne. You know, it says I was in the spirit. I love that because John was, you know, he was human in this, in this, as he's writing this, he's an old man on the island of Patmos and he's in his 90s and he's writing and he says immediately, I was immediately again transformed in the twinkling of an eye, the Bible says, we're going to be caught up. You know, when you breathe your last here on earth in a twinkling of an eye, you, you receive this spirit body, this glorified body, we call it. And he says he was transformed immediately into the spirit. And now he's in heaven. He's watching this scene. He's standing now in the throne room of God. And, and as he's standing there, he's in the spirit. You know, we long to be in the spirit. We have a, as Christians, we have these jargons or Christianese we use. And, you know, it's an excuse for sin. We say things like, oh, I got in the flesh. Oh, you mean you were sinning? Yeah, that's what I'm saying in a, in a roundabout way, you know. Lydia and I, um, we, we bought a new car yesterday. Yeah, praise the Lord. So um, I want to thank my son, Luke. He uh, crashed my wife's van last week. <laughs> Probably on his phone. And uh, it was funny because his car, he went and got an oil change on his car. And then he came back and he parked his car and he had to go to work the next morning. And so... Um, he went to get in his car and he pulled out and Lydia saw that where his car was parked was a puddle of oil. And so she calls him and she's like, something's not right with your oil change. Come back right away. So he turns around and comes back and switches cars with her really quick because he's got to get to work. But he can't drive his car because they did something wrong at the oil change place and all of his oil was leaking out. So they didn't put the plug back or whatever they did. So he jumps in her car and goes to work. And then she gets a call about 7 o'clock. Uh, Mom, <laughs> your car's a little mangled. Um, so anyways, he went to the shop and they, uh, they were going to fix it, and then they started tearing it apart, and they found some more damage, and the insurance adjuster called Lydia and I on Monday, and he's like, the, the, the damage went up, and, and it exceeds the value of the car, and so we're going to just we're gonna have to total the car, and meet me down there tomorrow, I'll give you a check, and so it was cool, so anyway, so now we're down a car, we have a rental car, they give it to us, the insurance guy says, I'll give it to you for a couple extra days, so you can buy a car, and buying a car right now, you guys, anybody else trying to buy a car right now? Impossible, there's no cars out there, there's nothing, and so this headache of trying to buy a car. But anyways, we, so we, we take the insurance money, and we did good. Actually, it worked out fine because Luke did us a favor because we, if we had traded the van in, and the, van, the van's all paid for, and we were going to try to hang. We are planning on getting Lydia a new car soon because it was time. But we were hoping to make it a little bit longer with no car payments. And so, um, but we got like 5000 more from the insurance than we would have got from the trade-in on the van. So that worked out. But we shopped and shopped. So you want to talk about getting in the flesh? <laughs> <laughs> Try to go car shopping around here. 
deal with these guys, you know. I always tease when we talk about after the rapture, if you need a lawyer, you'll be good because they'll still be here type jokes, you know. Or if you need a politician, you know, you'll be okay because after the rapture, the politicians will still be here. I think I'm going to, and i got to be careful because there's probably a used car salesman sitting in here somewhere. And I know you're not all bad, but it is the nature of the business, right? But, you know, the thing was, we ended up buying a brand new car. It's the first brand new car Lydia and I have ever bought. But... Yeah, the way it is right now, it's just different. We usually try to buy cars a year old with about 20,000 or less miles on them. The original distribution, we've had really good luck buying cars over the years, buying them a year, two years old, you know. But the thing doesn't exist anymore. Now, they showed us a car, and it was a 2019 or 18 Chevy Traverse, and it was like 49,000. And I said, how much are the new 2021s or brand new ones with no miles? And he said, those are 51,000. And I'm like, uh, $2,000 less for a two-year-old car. But that's how it was everywhere. You know, so anyways, long story short, Lydia got a really cool, we got a Hyundai Santa Fe is what she got. And it's really nice. It's really nice. Hyundai's come a long way. Yeah, and they, they, they did it right. So if you want to check out Lydia's new car after church, just follow her out to her car. <laughs> yeah, don't hit us, please. First time in my life I have a car with 18 miles on it. <laughs> So, yeah, wait till it gets to, like, 24 before we scratch it. We should. You know, we always joke that, you know, you need to go out there and just give it the first nice little scratch or ding so that it, you know, no, it's not ready too soon. All right. That was talk. We were talking about getting in the flesh, huh? That's what that all was all about. Sorry, I, I digressed a little bit. Told you my car story. I did pretty good, to be honest. I didn't get in the, did I get in the flesh a ton? A little bit? Okay, a little bit. All right. Yeah, but you, you got to be firm with those guys, you know. You got to, you can't let them. But when we did buy the car, we bought it at the Hyundai dealership way down in Linden. It was the only place we could find it on day number like two or three of car shopping, and uh, it was a great experience. We had a great experience. Salesman was great. I had already, I knew what I wanted. I got there like when the dealership opened up on Saturday morning and stood by the car, like, <laughs> I'm serious. I'm serious. I did so much. Like, I did. I found it. I finally found it. We started on day one traveling, and we started in Southtown, and we made it all the way to Ogden, and I hit every dealership in between. So when I finally found it, I was online late that night searching, and I found it in Linden. So I, I told her, we're getting up at 7 a.m. We're going to be there when they open. I'm going to find that car. No one's going to buy it out from underneath us. So, all right. So here we go. Getting in the flesh. John wasn't in the flesh. He was in the spirit. Verse 2, and behold, a throne. Everybody say a throne. Hey, look at somebody and say, or look at me and say, preach it. Okay, I really, 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 really wish I could. I really wish I could because I'm going to miss this, but I'm going to try to set it up just a little bit. Chapter 1, we get this amazing picture of Jesus himself. And, and, I, and, I, and I really tried. I was a little dramatic that Sunday and on purpose because I wanted to try to help us grasp a little bit. You know, Spurgeon said that great teachers can take what you hear and, and, and put it into your eyes so that you can see it. And we have these pictures where we get to try to do that, where we get to try to show you something that's, that's valuable and that is Jesus. And we have this amazing description of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. And what's so powerful about it is that John, who is there witnessing it, it says that when he realized it, when he saw Jesus, it says he fell on his face before the Lord. Just, ah, he just couldn't handle it. He didn't know what to do. And he just, bam, just prostrated himself on the ground. But that is so powerful because John knew Jesus more intimately than anybody who's ever had skin on in, their, in the world, human history. He spent three years of his life as a young man walking and living and sleeping in the same bedroom. He was so close to Jesus, they said. And John has this wonderful maturation of being aggressive as a young man when Jesus meets him and being the disciple of love when Jesus leaves him. And at the Last Supper, after all this time, John is laying on Jesus' bosom just because he loves him so much. John is called by Jesus, disciple whom I love. The, the love, the beloved disciple. And, and then John is, is in the inner circle, J- John, James, Peter, and John. And he's invited to the Mount of Transfiguration and he gets to see Jesus transfigured. 
He's there in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's in that little inner three circle that gets to see Jesus sweating great drops of blood. He's there when Jesus is resurrected and shows up in his glorified body and, and, and shows Thomas. And he's there on the beach cooking. He's there the day that the, the church is born. He's there, he's there the day that Jesus ascended into heaven and angels were standing there and saying, guys, this same Jesus who went up into heaven is coming back. And in the meantime, you've got work to do, so get busy and stop looking up into heaven. John is there for all of that. He knows Jesus. He has seen Jesus. He said, as he wrote in 1 John, that whom we have handled, that whom we have beheld, like he literally got to handle Jesus. See him in a glorified body. See him ascend. And when he sees this Jesus, this new form, this glorified in all of his glory in Revelation 1, he sees him and he doesn't go, Hey, Jesus, man, what's up, dude? I miss you. All this time we spent together. He sees him and he just goes, ah! Because it's this new, completely glorified picture of Jesus in Revelation 1. You know, and I tease and I say, you know, if you've ever said words like, you know, you got, you got a bunch of mosquito bites and you're like, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask a good old boy upstairs, what's up with these mosquitoes? No, you're not. You ain't going to say nothing. You're going to fall on your face like, ah! Forget the mosquitoes! <laughs> You're good. And, and so here in Revelation 4, it's not Jesus. It's the Father. And God gives us, and listen, th- these are not, they don't really fit in anthropomorphic terms, but anthropomorphic terms are human terms that we use to describe a holy God. And some things you just can't describe about God with, with English words. There's a place in the Bible where it says God relented or, or repented, some translations say, or changed his mind. Well, God doesn't do any of those things. He doesn't relent. He doesn't repent. He doesn't change his mind. But, but in the situation, he was moving Saul in a certain direction, and he changed and went a different direction with Saul. And they used a word there to describe that change. That's an anthropomorphism. It's an English word that tries to describe something heavenly that, that fails. Well, these are not that, but at the same time, we have here um, John trying to do his best with English words, with Greek words that he would have wrote in and translated to us in English, with words to describe what God himself looks like. It's possible. But I think we're going to get at least enough of it. I want you guys to get into this a little bit. I want you to see this with your mind's eye. And you just got to kind of imagine it, but we're going to see a picture of Jesus, or of the Father. And then Jesus is going to come in in chapter 5. And he's going to come in, and he's pictured as a lamb that was slain. And as we see Jesus through the rest of Revelation, guess how he's pictured? How did you guys fall asleep in the middle of all that? That was like all theatrical, and that's what's supposed to wake you up in the middle of like the 11:15 nap. So Jesus was portrayed in chapter 5. We're going to see him as a lamb. And then through the rest of Revelation, guess how Jesus is portrayed? As a lion. Well, close. He's still a lamb. He's going to be a lion later. But yeah, he keeps that, he keeps that idea of being a lion. A lamb, I'm sorry. All right. All right, so here we go. So he says the throne, and then he says, and he who sat there was like a jasper. Now, again, this word like you got to pay attention to because he wasn't a jasper. He was like a jasper and a sardis stone in appearance. You know, you could describe your wife that way and get some points, guys. She's like a jasper and a sardis in appearance. She's like an emerald and a diamond in appearance. What does she look like? She's like a diamond. And he says that she is like... He is like a jasper and a sardis stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. And so emerald is a green color. And so there was a rainbow around the throne of God. And God is, is the, only, the only crack at it that John really takes is he says he's, he's just like precious stones is what I saw. It's just a light. Then he would describe in other places as just a light. And there's a rainbow that's around the throne. Now, whether it's around the throne, you know, vertically this way or vertically this way or horizontally, or it just is encompassing, it's an emerald, so it's green, but God is on a throne and there's this light, this rainbow light that is around him. And then it says, um, and he who sat there was like Jasper and Emerald, verse 4, and around the throne were 24 elders. And on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes and they had crowns of gold on their head. Now this word crowns in the Greek is Stephanos. 
It's not the same crown that we see Jesus wearing um, in, in Revelation 19. That's a diadem. A king wore a diadem. When, a, when an Olympic sprinter or runner received a crown, Paul said, run in such a way that you should receive a crown. That's an athletic term for the Olympics. Um, and that was a Stephanos. It was a wreath or, or a different kind of crown. It adorned your head, but it's not didn't adorn your head like a king. So these 24 elders, it says they have thrones and they have crowns, but they're lesser crowns. So who are these 24 elders that are sitting around the throne of God? Now, lots of different ideas of who they are. Um, the, one of them being that in, in the way that God set up the temple was the priests would work in shifts and they would always be in groups of 24. And so there would be 24 Levites assigned for a period, usually a two-week period, and then they would rotate and the priests would have other duties and other work to do. But during the time that they were temple um, duties, they would be on staff. And so this, this 24 represents this this elder board that represents the priests and the Levites. And that's one idea who these 24 are because that number 24 is, is exactly what you find in the Levitical order. The other idea that these 24, and it's the one I've always kind of leaned towards, it does have a little bit of a problem, but the, the consistency with who these 24 are, you'll find at the end of Revelation, because it says that um, in, in the, when a new heaven and a new earth come down, that there's 12 gates and 12 foundations. Sorry. I'm not going to beat you guys up. I'm going to be nice. Um, I'm not going to tell you guys you need to read your Bibles more. There's 12 gates and 12 foundations. And upon the 12 gates are written the 12 names of the apostles. And on the 12 foundations, or I think that's backwards. I'm sorry. I should read my Bible more. I don't, I don't remember which one it is. I think, the, I think the 12 tribes are on the gates and the foundations are the apostles. Yeah. So on the, on the foundations are the names of the 12 apostles. So you have these two numbers of 12 represented in heaven for all of eternity. So the names of the 12 apostles, and that's why there's not 13 apostles or 14 or modern day apostles as in the sense of the 12 apostles, because there's only 12 foundations to write names on. And there's 12 gates, and those are the 12 tribes of Israel. So that this group here represents the 12 tribes and the 12 um, apostles. And they're the ones that are sitting there in this elder board the, the, the patriarchs of Israel. And so it represents the Old and the New Testament saints. It's a good idea. But the one problem with that is that John himself is one of those 12. So he would have been like, there's me. That's me right there. That's a cool crown. I'm going to wear that. You know, and he's there in the spirit and he's seeing this scene. But maybe he was there and he didn't say it. I don't know. But nonetheless, it's, it's what is obvious here is that these are 12 um, um, or 24 representatives of the church and, and, and of God's people that are in heaven. Now, I want you to understand something really clearly. We do make a distinction between Old Testament and New Testament saints. But Old Testament and New Testament saints are all saved the same exact way. The ones in the Old Testament are saved by faith. The ones in the New Testament are saved by faith. We're all saved the same way. We're saved by faith. We're saved by the, the same exact thing. The only thing they did different is to get saved today by faith. We, we look back to the cross. They had to look forward to the cross. Exactly the same. It was accounted to Abraham. Abraham believed and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So Abraham's faith came by him believing in a future Messiah that would come. So that's just Bible. Everybody gets saved the same way. They're, they're lived under a dispensation. They still lived under the law of Moses. We don't live under the law of Moses. But salvation came the same way. Believing in Jesus. And so this group of 24, without a doubt, is representative of, of those that are in heaven. And then it says in verse 5, And from the throne proceeded lightnings and thundering. Somebody say, ooh. And this is just God. This is who he is. He's just lightnings and thunderings and voices. And seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Now this is a term we've run into in Revelation multiple times. And seven spirits of God, and I hope it's not a cop-out, I really don't. I really believe that what we see here is the Holy Spirit. But there's not seven Holy Spirits. But we do have a verse in the Bible in Isaiah that says 
the seven manifold ministries or workings of the Holy Spirit, wisdom and power and knowledge and and those seven that are listed there. And so we often interpret this seven spirits in Revelation as the entire work of who the complete Holy Spirit. The number seven is the number of completion in the Bible. And so we have the complete work of the Holy Spirit represented here in the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was a sea of glass. Now I'll tell you, the word sea in the Bible um, never represents an um, actual sea. It's usually humanity, or it represents a, a nations, or it's an idiom that's used for people or large people groups. And so here we have this sea of glass. And again, if the church has been raptured, what John would have seen was just a sea of people, of all people that were saved throughout history. If the raptures happened and were all there in some capacity um, or some place witnessing this scene and behind John. And so he says, I see a sea of glass. And I see it as being glass because glass is transparent. And the other thing is that when you talk about an, about a lake or an ocean and you say it's glassy, what does that mean? It's smooth. It's calm. And without a doubt, we'll be in heaven and we'll be calm. And I'm already smooth, but I'll be smooth. <laughs> smooth and calm. And then it says, so I saw this sea of glass. Thun- or, I'm sorry. Sea of glass, verse 6. Like crystal. Again, just this clear, transparent. Probably represents the church there in verse 6. Or not, not just the church, but the, the, everybody that's been saved from Adam to the rapture. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. And the first living creature was like a lion. Was he a lion? Okay, he was like a lion. So just know that these are angelic beings. And so John is using um, terms here. And it says the second living creature was like a calf. That could be translated ox. And, or if it's a baby, a baby ox would be a calf too as well. Um, and the third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Now, you guys have to um, forgive me. I am now in, like, move really fast mode to try to finish. So, but I want to cover some of this, but I'm going to move fast. Um, so you have these four living creatures. This description of the throne of God is very consistent with other places. Ezekiel had a vision, and he saw the throne of God. And what he described was these exact four um, beasts or creatures that, that surround God in his throne. Ezekiel also had a, had a vision, and he saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the robe of his train filled, the, filled his glory, filled the house or filled the temple. Uh, and, and so we have consistencies in this. I've heard of testimonies of people who say that they were, um, you know, had that near-death experience and had an experience. And, and one of them was super fascinating to me, a young man, and people always caution you about that, and I get it. You know, a lot of people are very critical of those that say, oh, I've had a vision of heaven, or I saw Jesus, or I went to heaven and came back. And I'm kind of on the fence with it. I think it could go both ways. And part of the, the people who are very critical of it say the Apostle Paul, and this is true, the Apostle Paul um, went to heaven. He died. He was stoned to death. He was caught up into the third heaven where God is. And he said, the things that I heard would be a crime if I tried to repeat them. They're like the Apostle Paul said it would be a crime if he tried to repeat them. And who are these people to say they had a vision of heaven and could repeat what they saw? So I get it. That's a valid argument. But what's true is that if we're if we're using that, let's be consistent because we have four other places in the Bible where um, Ezekiel, Isaiah, um, John went to heaven and did describe what they saw. So so that it's I don't think it's completely outlandish. And so I like to take each one. And unfortunately, we had. A couple of these guys, one guy, he had a vision of heaven. He died in this car crash, and he told this story, and he wrote a book, and he sold a million copies of his book. And then 20 years later, I don't know why, maybe he just, but he came out and he just said it, told everybody. It was a lie. It was all, I made it all up. None of that happened. I never went to heaven. I, and I, I made that all up for money. And it gave it a bad name, and that's happened before. And so that, that, you've got to be on your guard for those things. When people tell you, oh, I saw heaven, or I saw this thing, like, you always take it with a grain of salt. But I don't, I don't always throw it out. But anyways, this young man... He said he had a, a vision of heaven, of, of being in the throne room of God, and that he saw these four living creatures. And, and again, it is very consistent all the way through. And what are they? Well, in, in Isaiah, they're, they're described as, um, you hear these two terms, cherubim and seraphim. You know, upon the, upon the ark of God were two cherubim, or angels with wings touching. And so these are names in the Bible for angels. We always use the term angels, but actually... If you really study angelology, what you find is there's probably 
six different angelic categories that we see in heaven that are angelic beings. Angels, again, seraphim and, and teraphim and others that are things that are in heaven and exist in heaven. Just like if you had, you know, if there's animals in heaven, probably is, right? We get to heaven, it says the lion will lay down with the lamb. That's the millennial, though. It's not exactly in heaven. But, like, the type of animals we're going to have in heaven, they're going to be like Aslan, right? Like, they're going to talk to you. They're going to hang out. They're going to be smart. They're, you know, and so we have this different class of, of beasts that are described and, and these ones are forever in the throne room of God, worshiping God day and night. And it's spontaneous. I wonder if these guys get stuck in like a really bad version of Groundhog's Day. But I don't think so. I don't think so because they because of what they're doing. But look what it says they do. So it says um, we have these, these beings. And then in verse 8 it says, The four living creatures, each having six wings. You know, in Ezekiel's vision he saw four wings. In Isaiah's vision he saw six wings. But again, the same idea, the cherubim, the seraphim are these angelic hosts. And, and they were full of eyes around and within. You think that's weird? They had eyes everywhere? How many of you guys are like, my mom's got eyes in the back of her head? And that yardstick, my grandma would hit us with a yardstick. She had this little yardstick. and She was about 90 pounds, but if that yardstick was coming at you, you ran. Um, and, and so they, but you know, we're not in heaven. And so they have eyes all around. And they do not rest day or night saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. You know, one of the most awesome experiences as a Christ follower is spontaneous worship. It's when something hits you from God that just, you, it just it's spontaneous and your, your first reaction is, oh God, you're so good. God, I love you. Or you get emotional, you cry or something happens because this spontaneous worship of God. Like we schedule worship and we come and we sing and we want to get into that moment. But I'll tell you, the most awesome experiences in my, Christ, in my life as a Christ follower have been those, those rare moments where, you know, it's just something super spontaneous and just something happens. And, I, and these guys are in that moment and it's like they have eyes all around so they never have to take their eyes off God and can still be seeing what's going on. And as their eyes are focused on God, when they see Him and they see this throne and the rainbow and the emeralds and the beauty and God on His throne... It says that they fall down and they just say, holy, holy, holy. And it's, they just can't help it. It's like, ah, oh, just, you know, like they don't know what else to do. And they're in his presence. And, and so their only response is just to fall down and say, holy, holy, holy. And then they get up and they look around and they're, oh, and it says they do this day and night and day and night and day and night. That's the goodness of God. That's the awe factor of God. How many of you guys got a bone to pick with the good old boy upstairs? Get out of here with that. Ain't picking no bone with this dude. God forgive me, I just called him a dude. He's not a dude. It's the God of heaven. It's the creator of all things. It's a God who loves us. It's so fabulous and so fascinating that we're going to get to see him in three parts here in this scene in heaven. We're going to see in chapter 5, the Holy Spirit is there. Jesus is there. We're going to get to see the three in one, all separate, all together. All one God, all in glory and in power, each with a separate function and uh, purpose in your life to love you and to pour God's Holy Spirit into you and for you to know and to respond to the love of God and the power and the majesty of our God as He sits upon the throne. And Jesus, who appears as a lamb that's bloody and, and scarred, and the Holy Spirit, the seven manifold manifestations of the Holy Spirit that's there around Jesus in chapter 5. And we have this amazing scene in heaven here in 4. Let's finish it and then we're done. Worship team, you guys want to close us in a song? You guys want to come up? I don't see them. They took off. Um, it says, Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, then the 24 elders fell down before Him who sits on the throne and worship Him who lives forever. What, what do they do in heaven? Worship God. I wish, I wish, you know, I'm not going to have no job in heaven. You know what you don't see in heaven? Preachers or teachers or, you know, revelation being given. Because we're going to know Him as we're known. God's going God's to quicken you. When you get your glorified body, a good mind's going to come with it. You know, they say we only use about one-tenth of our mind power anyways, right? Like your, your mind is so powerful, what it can do. And, and God has to kind of limit it so we don't kill ourselves and hurt ourselves and get in a position we're not supposed to be in in, in, in life. 
And that's all going to be unlocked. But you know what will function throughout all of eternity? Worship. So these guys are going to have a job throughout all of eternity. Oh, y'all. I can set up and take down their equipment because I won't have a job. But, but we will worship through all of eternity. And so let's, let's do it right now. Amen? When we do it. No, no, no. One sec. I'm almost done. And it says, The 24 elders who live, who live forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne. Listen, this is so important, and I'm so out of time, but you're going to receive a crown. You're going, you can receive up to seven crowns for accomplishments and works. The Bible is clear that God rewards good works. Good works do not save you. That's a lie of Satan. That, that the cults and that the isms and schisms of the world and every one of them, 100% of them, have adopted. That works save you. Works do not save you. Works are rewarded and they are required as Christ followers and they're rewarded in heaven. And one of the rewards is crowns. And so you get to heaven and you don't get to take anything with you. You know, Tim LaHaye was like the famous guy who wrote the Left Behind series and was an eschatologist. He's on to be with the Lord now. Tim LaHaye is, is, um, has, has gone on to be with the Lord, but... You know, kind of his idea was that when the rapture happens, that all your clothes would, would just stay in a pile on the ground and you would just be in your glorified body and you'd just go up, you know. And it's kind of funny because it's like, well, what about grandma? She's got false teeth and hip replacement and a couple of her toes, you know, were, had to be screwed together. And is all that stuff going to land down too? Or, yeah, I don't know what's going to happen, you know. But this idea where we, we just, everything stays here and, and, and we go up. I lost what I was talking about. I think I was the Lord. It's like, keep going. Oh, yes, 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 yes. I was going to say, we have nothing. We don't need to bring nothing. We just go up. We don't bring no gold. It's asphalt in heaven anyways. And the one thing we get is crowns. Now, now there's other things that are valuable to us in heaven. Number one, the number one thing of value going to be in heaven, obviously, is that Jesus and God is in. We're in the throne room of God. Okay, that's without saying. But people that you got to share your faith with. If there's somebody in heaven because you witnessed to them and shared with them, that's going to bring value to your life in heaven. Man, you're here because I got to be a part of you being here. That's value. No, no Rolexes, no Bentleys, no new Hyundai Santa Fe's. That stuff, not going to matter. But somebody who you led to Jesus. But then God gives us this crown. But the one thing we have of value, what do we do with it? We're so awe. We're so in awe of God when we get to see Him and the 24 elders, and and we have nothing. And so the one thing of value we have, we're just like, ah! We just throw it at His feet. That's the God of heaven, you guys. And this is our Lord, and we're going to see him, and we're going to be here very shortly, like in a week, I think. <laughs> and then 11 says, they sang, you are worthy, O Lord. So let's stand together to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Listen, you got one verse right there, verse 11. Everybody say chapter 4, verse 11. You don't need to argue with your, with your atheist friends or your evolutionist friends anymore. We're not going to do it. We're not scientists. Let them argue all the science we want. We're just going to go to Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, and it says God created all things. That's good enough for me. It's good enough for you that we are created by God, and it says here that God created all things. And that's enough. That's good enough. Amen? God created you, the Bible says, in another place for his good pleasure. Does that make you, uh, does that offend you? Does that make you feel like, well, God created me just for his own good pleasure? He doesn't even care about me or anything. He just made me like a little doll. He's like, I'm a Barbie or something. I get no, you're not a Barbie, by the way. <laughs> you're maybe a Ken doll. No, I'm kidding. Um, do you know if Barbie was life-sized, she couldn't walk upright because her body would be so disproportioned that she couldn't like function as a human? Anyways, um, that God created us just to be a toy. No, that's not the point. But the point is powerful and valuable that, that God, this amazing God in heaven, did create us for fellowship. He created us, and that's why there's a choice. That's why you get to choose whether you want to believe or not. Because if you, if you have a choice and then you choose God, he can reward that. But if he did create you like a robot and, and, and he forced you to believe, he could force you to believe. If he's God and he's as powerful as we think he is, he can make an argument so powerful that you'll be forced to believe. He can give you evidence so powerful that you have to believe. That's not, that's not, God can do that. He doesn't want to do that. He's chosen not to do that. That's why Jesus spoke in parables. He, he, he wants you to have a choice, but if you choose him, if you choose Jesus in your life, there's relationship, there's fellowship, there's reward. 
There's, there's real relationship. There's a thing that God created that's called love. And there's only love when you make that choice. And God has given you that choice. But he loves you. And he gives you an opportunity this morning to choose him, to make sure that you know that you know you know you're going to heaven. Listen, eternity is a breath away. And I teach it, you know, think, oh, I got some time before the rapture. But life doesn't always give us time. We could slip on a banana peel on the way out of here. Go meet Jesus. We just never know when your last day is. So today is the day of salvation, the Bible says. Amen? If you'd like to ask Jesus in your heart, if you'd like to get your heart and life ready, if you'd like to get your heart and life right with Jesus, I want to lead you in a prayer. This is an individual decision for you, and, and it's just a matter of you saying yes to Jesus. There's no real magic. There's no words I could say is kind of really awesome prayer and all this cool stuff, or I could just kind of mess the prayer up and say the wrong thing. But in your heart, if you're saying yes to Jesus, that's what God hears, and that's what's important. It's you saying, God, I want to surrender my life to you. I want to give you my whole heart. I want to give you all of my life. I believe in Jesus. And the Bible says in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that if you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth, you will be saved. If you believe in your heart that Christ died on the cross and rose again the third day, you will be saved. Now, why there's a distinction, but God does give a distinction in his word to believe he died on the cross and rose again. And ask him in your heart. So I want to give you that opportunity today simply just to say yes to Jesus. And we'll make it simple, but the magic happens in your heart. And if you say that prayer... Um, Lydia and I will be up front to pray for you. Josh and Amber will be up front to pray. If you'd like individual prayer, then we'd love for you to come up and just let us know that you said that prayer and you asked Jesus in your heart. And, um, and we will give you a Bible if you need that and, 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 and some literature. So we love you guys. God bless you. Let's pray together. Close our eyes. Bow our heads. Just pray with me. Let's all pray out loud. Dear Lord Jesus, I surrender my life. I ask you to come into my life. I believe Jesus died on a cross and rose again the third day. I ask you to fill me with the Holy Spirit. I give you my life. I surrender. I realize I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I repent of my sin. And I ask that you would forgive me. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Let's worship the Lord.